First of all, I want to say Alhamdulillah, God gave me everything. Alhamdulillah. I got one bodyguard. That's God. Oh, he's my bodyguard. He's your bodyguard. I'm yeah. a Muslim. I believe in the religion of Islam. The Quran is the word of God. How can I smile and how can food and water taste good to me when Masjid Al-Aqsa is in the hands of the Crusaders? These were the sentiments of Sultan Salahuddin Ayyubi with regards to Jerusalem being under the control of the Christian Crusaders. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome to Elevating the Ummah. I'm Mahmoud Ahmad and this episode is on Sultan Salahuddin Ayyubi, or Saladin as he's prominently known in the West. Salahuddin was a great hero of Islam. He was not only a great military leader, but also a great ruler, and as some have described him, a prince of virtue. His achievements number many, such as retaking Jerusalem, as well as uniting a vast majority of the Ummah at a time of disunity. There are many biographies and accounts of Salahuddin that one can read, and also some movies which portray him. He's a celebrated Muslim, even for non-Muslims who have no choice but to acknowledge his greatness. From Salahuddin, we'll learn many lessons, particularly how to navigate these times of a disunited Ummah, which he himself faced. So, let's get started. Before narrating Salahuddin's biographical account, it's worth taking a look at the historical and political context of his era. On the face of it, the Muslim Ummah seemed to be living in its golden age. Spanning from Spain to India, it was a vast landmass that was under Islamic rule. Trade flourished, not just between the Muslims, but also with the Chinese and the Europeans. Scientific and mathematical advancements were being made by the day, and important books were being translated from Greek, Persian, Sanskrit and Latin into Arabic. Baghdad boasted over a million inhabitants, and other cities such as Bukhara was home to 300,000 people. It's fair to say that the Islamic world was the centre of the world at the time. But there's a problem with all of this. Despite such grandeur, beneath the surface there was disunity. The Banu Abbas, or Abbasis, ruled a vast area as the Sunni Caliphs, with Baghdad as their capital. To the west, in Egypt and other parts of North Africa, Syria and Lebanon, the Fatimi Caliphs, a Shiite Caliphate, was ruling with their capital in Cairo. And to another side, the Seljuk Turks ruled as the Sultans, paying mere lip service to the Abbasi Khilafah. Alliances were unreliable. There were constant betrayals and skirmishes. Each dynasty or tribe wanted superiority over the other. It was clear that the age of glory of the Banu Abbas was over. They had gotten distracted by luxury and pleasures of this world, and their land was broken up into petty chiefdoms. As a famous biographer of Salahuddin, John Mann aptly wrote, and I quote, So all Arabs, Shiite and Sunni alike, recalled a golden age, singing of what was once achieved in the name of Islam, dreaming of a future when unity and prosperity would return. End quote. Things took a turn for the worse when a new enemy emerged. Towards the end of the 11th century common era, the Crusaders appeared from Europe, with the aim of capturing lands that were ruled by Muslims, especially Jerusalem, the Holy Land. These Crusaders were commissioned by Pope Urban II. They consisted mainly of people from what is modern-day France and some other parts of Western Europe. The First Crusade, as it became to be known, was a true tragedy for the Muslims. The Crusaders managed to annex much land and even captured Jerusalem in the year 1099 common era. The atrocities that followed with the population of Jerusalem by the Crusaders is a whole other story. In the following decades, many attempts were made to recapture the lost lands by the Muslims. But due to some reasons, call it bad luck, treachery or lack of courage and leadership, all of these efforts failed. As Ibn al-Athir wrote, 
The sultans did not agree among themselves and it was for this reason that the Franks were able to seize control. And so, by the time of the birth of Salahuddin, 40 years after the fall of Jerusalem, all hopes and dreams of retaking Islam's third holiest site had dwindled down, as there was a growing belief that no great Muslim leader would rise to bring them out of this state of chaos and disunity. And this brings us to Salahuddin himself. Born in Tikrit, modern-day Iraq, in the year 1137 Common Era, by the name of Yusuf ibn Ayyub, his father, Najmuddin Ayyub, was the governor of the town, just as his father, a Kurd from Armenia, had been. Salahuddin's father, Ayyub, managed to find himself in a favourable position with Imad al-Din Zangi, a Turkic warrior king of Aleppo and Mosul. Zangi appointed Ayyub as the governor of Baalbek, but after Zangi's death, another king took over Baalbek and appointed Ayyub to a lesser administrative role near Damascus. And that's how the young Yusuf, or Salahuddin as we'll refer to him, found himself spending his teenage years in Damascus. An important note here is that Zangi's third son, Nuruddin Zangi, inherited a large part of his father's territory. Nuruddin was considered a pious and just ruler, with the aim of re-establishing the glory of Islam once again. The next crusade was aimed at Edessa, but for some reason the Christian army decided to attack Damascus instead. Salahuddin was only 11 at the time, so he didn't partake in the battle, but he did take part in the loss of war as his elder brother, Shahanshah, died in the battle. The Muslims managed to fend off the Crusaders this time. Then, when Unar, the ruler of Damascus, died, Nuruddin, over the next five years and through clever tactics, managed to bring the city under his dominion, much with the help of Ayyub, who was still in the city, and with Ayyub's brother, Shirku, who was Salahuddin's uncle, who commanded Nuruddin's army. Now the two main Syrian cities of Aleppo and Damascus were united under one leader. Salahuddin was 15 or 16 years old at the time. Salahuddin's youth was spent in education and sports. He was educated in the Holy Quran, which he memorised, as well as Arabic grammar and other subjects. Sports-wise, he was skilled in hunting, horse riding and archery, amongst others. And now he was reaching adulthood, and his uncle Shirku took him along to his military expeditions. At this time, Egypt was in a precarious political situation. It was under the rule of the Fatimi Caliphs, but was actually being run by the vizier or the prime minister, which would change frequently as they'd get assassinated. A quick note on the Fatimid Caliphate. It was founded in the year 909 Common Era and spanned over most of North Africa and some parts of the Levant, which seemed like a paradox, seeing as a core belief of the Shia is that Khilafah was not the true successorship of the Holy Prophet rather it was Imamat in the line of Ali ibn Talib but settling theological differences is not the aim of this podcast. Also, it might be of interest to note that the Fatimis were a subsect of Shia Islam, known as the Ismailia, and it was these very Ismailia from whom the infamous assassins emerged, with whom Salahuddin had a few encounters later on in his life. Now, let's get back to the story. Al-Adid was the Fatimid Caliph, and a man named Shahwar was his vizier. Their main stronghold was Egypt, with Cairo as its capital. But due to political decline and weakness of the state, others had their eyes set on Egypt. The Frankish Crusader kingdoms, especially that of Jerusalem and its king Amalric, had their eyes set on the target. Nuruddin realised this and in response also directed his efforts towards Egypt. Shahwar was ousted by a competitor and he turned up to Nuruddin for help. Nuruddin agreed to help Shahwar 
with the agreement that Shawar would pay him one-third of his grains, essentially making Shawar his puppet in Egypt. He sent an army headed by his commander Shirku, with Salahuddin assisting him to conquer Egypt. Shirku and his army managed to capture Cairo and reinstate Shawar as vizier, but he turned against them and allied with the Franks. Hence, battle between the Syrian army of Nuruddin and the Frankish and Egyptian alliance commenced. There was no victory for either side, but neither suffered a defeat. It was more of a stalemate, but that didn't matter because Salahuddin managed to gain some experience at warfare. The second expedition resulted in much the same way, but again, there was valuable experience gained by Salahuddin in the form of governorship of Alexandria for a short while. It was only the third time that Shirku and Salahuddin managed to take Cairo. Shawar was executed and Shirku was sworn in as the vizier by the caliph, but only a couple of months later, he passed away. At the relatively young age of 32, Salahuddin succeeded his uncle as the next vizier. Essentially, Egypt had fallen into his lap without an intended effort. But now, Salahuddin was in quite an interesting political situation. He was a vizier of a Fatimi caliph, but also the lieutenant of a Turkish sultan, who in turn accepted the nominal authority of the Abbasi caliph. So Salahuddin was a subordinate of both a Shia and Sunni caliph at the same time. Salahuddin spent this time as ruler of Egypt well, he was kind, pious and generous to the citizens, and now he began to focus his attention on jihad, holy war. The Franks, in a coalition with the Byzantines, attempted to take Cairo by besieging it, but it was unsuccessful. After that, in the year 1070 Common Era, Salahuddin began his campaign to retake Frankish territories. He began with small fortresses and borderlands, such as the fortress of Isla. In the year 1071 Common Era, another important development occurred. The last Fatimi Caliph, Al-Adid, fell ill and within a few weeks died at the young age of 20. With this ended the 200-year Fatimi Caliphate. Salahuddin didn't announce a successor. Rather, he ordered for the Sunni Caliph in Baghdad, Al-Musaddi's name, to be read out in the Friday prayers, as well as minting coins with the Caliph's head on one side and his own head on the other side. All this time, Salahuddin was becoming ever more established in his role as Sultan of Egypt. So much so that according to some narrations, his boss in Syria, Nurdin, began to be concerned that Salahuddin might establish his own state. But other reports suggest that Salahuddin made every effort to ensure that Nurdin didn't feel as though he would be deposed and showed utmost loyalty. It was only due to some army officers that enmity began between the two, but even then, they didn't really come to odds with each other. In any case, before things could turn truly sour between student and master, Nurdin fell ill during a hunting trip and died shortly after. This was in the year 1074 Common Era. This left a power vacuum in Syria, and Nuruddin's 11-year-old son couldn't even hope to fill it. And because of this, many princes and other leaders began seditions, trying to uproot each other and the young son of Nuruddin, al-Malik al-Salih. The situation got so tense that soon enough the senior officers of Damascus requested Salahuddin to come and restore order. This he did very willingly, he entered Damascus, wanting to take on the role of guardian of the young al-Malik al-Salih, who was in Aleppo at the time. From there, he marched onto other cities such as Homs and other major towns and cities in Syria, which he brought under his control. It was only Aleppo which didn't submit to him, so the northern part of Syria remained out of his dominion for now. This must have been frustrating, seeing as he was on a mission to unite the Muslim world. But, for the time being, he shifted his attention elsewhere. In addition to these Syrian cities, Salahuddin also united other regions under his control, beginning with Yemen, where he appointed his brother Turan Shah as the governor. After Yemen, Salahuddin brought Tripoli, Burqa and the eastern part of Tunisia under his rule. 
In the year 579 after Hijri, Salahuddin arranged a religious conference in Damascus, which was attended by princes, rulers and religious clergy of various regions. In this conference, everyone agreed to unite under Salahuddin, except for the envoy from Mosul. But only two years later, Salahuddin was able, through military might, to bring Mosul under his sway as well. And to add to his credibility, the Caliph al-Musta'addi in Baghdad himself declared Salahuddin master over all of these regions. So he got that religious stamp as well, despite the fact that the Caliph had no real political power. It's important to note that Salahuddin was very forbearing and merciful to those he defeated. Call it tactful and cunning, or genuinely ethical and moral, this was beneficial because he knew that later on it was those very people and armies he defeated which would comprise of his larger unified Muslim army against the Franks and the Christians. But generally, it was his nature to be kind and compassionate to his subjects. He lifted unpopular taxes, improved the economy of his dominions, and spent wealth on infrastructure, such as city walls, hospitals, and schools. For the time being, the enemy that Salahuddin now focused on were the Nizari Ismaili assassins, led by Sinan in the fortress of Masyaf. He was known as the Old Man of the Mountain, and Aleppo had sent him a request to send assassins to dispatch Salahuddin. Twice, the assassins managed to infiltrate Salahuddin's camp. One of these times, four of them were dressed as his guards and even hurt him, but his other guards and officers overcame them. In response, Salahuddin took his men and besieged the fortress at Masyaf. Eventually, the Ismailis would have been starved out, but before that could happen, Sinan and Salahuddin came to an agreement, and after just a week, the siege was lifted. The assassins didn't bother Salahuddin for the next 17 years. An important note on the Ismaili assassins is that although their assassin faction didn't survive as such, today there is still a relatively large following of Ismaili Shiaism. They are led by the Aga Khan, who's both the Imam and a philanthropist. Anyway, when Aleppo saw that the assassins were a dead end, they decided to ally with the Franks instead. In exchange, they released some Frankish prisoners, one of them, Reynold, was to be one of Salahuddin's greatest rivals. Reynold was a French knight turned mercenary turned prince when he married the princess of a city. His reputation was pretty deplorable. He was known to be ruthless, violent, deceitful and full of passion for rape and murder. His antics got him imprisoned in Aleppo and he spent 16 years rotting in a prison whilst his vengefulness and hatred for Muslims festered. And that's when he came onto the scene, where we find Salahuddin, who had just consolidated most of his dominion. An interesting fact about Reynold, as the famous biographer of Salahuddin John Mann states, is that his vices and sinful nature made Salahuddin's virtues and good morals stand out even more. It's fair to say that if we consider Salahuddin to be the hero, Reynold was the anti-hero. Another significant rival of Salahuddin came when Amalric, the king of Jerusalem, died and left his 13-year-old son, Baldwin, as heir. Baldwin, though, had leprosy, a disease which pretty much ate away at his flesh and face. Now, Salahuddin saw many victories, but he also saw some defeats, though they might be small and insignificant in the long run. One such defeat came when some of Baldwin's men, including Reynold, joined forces with the Knights Templar, which was an organisation of rich knights whose only loyalty was with the Pope. This group caught Salahuddin's army unawares and managed to make them flee whilst incurring heavy losses. But the army found respite when night came to save them. Salahuddin managed to emerge unharmed and wiser, since he would make sure not to make such a mistake again. 
but his forces were scattered and they were lost in the Sinai desert on severely cold days with a shortage of water. Eventually, Salahuddin's secretary hired Bedouins for a search and rescue mission, and he was returned to Cairo two weeks later, having lost 2,000 men. But Salahuddin had a grand vision to unite the Ummah and a great economy to supplement that vision. So, within four months, he was able to make up the losses and return to Syria. But he found Syria in disarray. His brother Turan Shah was not doing a great job of looking after the land, with most cities in some calamity or the other. So, he spent some time sorting out the affairs in his home, one of these being a border skirmish with the Turkic Seljuk Sultan Kilij Arsalan and his army, which Salahuddin and his men defeated. The next few years aren't documented with absolute clarity in the pages of history, except that in 1178 Common Era, King Baldwin began to build a castle near the Jordan River, which would block Salahuddin's passage to Jerusalem. But it was soon abandoned within only 11 months when Salahuddin managed to break the castle walls and deal a great blow to the Franks, killing 800 and capturing 700 men. In between the rise and fall of the castle, during a border skirmish, King Baldwin and the Knights Templar entered Salahuddin's territory, only to be sent running when a nearby force of 1,000 Muslims caught up to them. The Muslims killed some and captured more, including the leader of the Templars, Odo, who was imprisoned and died a few months later. Over the next three years, between 1179 and 1183 Common Era, not much happened, and considering all of the different factions present on the world stage, such as the Seljuk Turks, Salahuddin, the Baghdad Khilafa, the Franks of Jerusalem, Franks of other individual states, rogue Frankish knights, the Byzantine Emperor Manuel, etc., no one group emerged as a superpower for the time being. It was not an optimal time for any side to win, and Baldwin requested a truce with Salahuddin in 1180 Common Era, which he graciously accepted. This truce, however, frustrated Reynold, and he set out to accomplish an unthinkable feat, raiding the heart of Islam, Mecca and Medina. He used the Red Sea and landed in the Hejaz region, where he began advancing and raiding, but before he could even reach Medina, he had to turn back because Salahuddin's nephew countered by raiding around the castle of Ailat, which was Reynold's territory and former castle, which Salahuddin himself had conquered in the year 1170 Common Era. The truce seemed broken and Salahuddin sought compensation from Baldwin by arresting 1,500 Christian pilgrims, but it was clear Reynold wasn't going to return the loot. Reynold regrouped and launched another raid, this time reaching the road that pilgrims took. His men began to rape and plunder at will and they worked their way inwards, potentially heading for the port city of Jeddah. When Salahuddin heard of this, he sent word for his admiral Hossam ad to take action. This he did. He prepared a fleet and went off, first to Ailat, relieving the castle of the two Frankish ships that had besieged it. Then he followed Reynold and his remaining men. Reynold's men were eventually captured and executed, but Reynold himself managed to escape. The intention behind these raids is disputed. It might have been to attack the holy sites of Islam itself for unthinkable gains for the Christians or it might have been intended as a message to strike fear into the Muslims that the Franks could enter the holy cities, or it could have been to slow down Salahuddin's consolidation of his kingdom. Either way, Salahuddin and his admiral Lutlu served the world of Islam from any such outcome and were heralded as the protectors of Islam. Salahuddin went on to unite more land. First, he took the city of Amida, which is in modern-day southern Turkey, and then he besieged the elusive Aleppo. The siege ended with the ruler of Aleppo, Imad ad-Din Zangi, the nephew of Nur ad-Din Zangi, agreeing to hand over the city to Salahuddin in exchange for rule over a much smaller fiefdom. 
Hence, Aleppo came into Salahuddin's dominion. Mosul would soon be in his hands as well, as the impotent ruler was isolated and landlocked in Salahuddin's kingdom. So now he could finally turn his attention towards his true goal, retaking Jerusalem and the honour of the Islamic world. In the year 1183 Common Era, there was a showdown between the Sultan's forces and King Baldwin's forces, which was led by Guy, the regent and brother-in-law of the leper king. No one attacked though, and after five days, both sides retreated. Soon after, Salahuddin besieged Reynold in his current castle of Kerak, which was hosting some royals and a wedding. But this siege was lifted when reinforcements from Jerusalem closed in. The next year, a second attempt resulted in the same manner, and the French were able to carry on raiding Muslim lands nearby. In 1185 Common Era, King Baldwin finally died, in his early 20s. He willed his young nephew Baldwin IV to succeed him, with his uncle Raymond III as a regent, but rivalries simmered. The new young king died within a year, and despite various factions vying for the throne, the leper king's sister Sibylla invited Reynold into the city and proclaimed herself as queen. And in turn, she crowned her husband, Guy, as king. Meanwhile, Salahuddin caught a fever, which seemed like it would take his life. But after a while he recovered, although he did suffer a heavy loss. His wife, Ismat, the former widow of Nuruddin Zangi, passed away. But with that came a victory as well. Mosul and its leaders finally became Salahuddin's subjects. The immediate aim of uniting a large part of the Islamic world complete, now he turned his attention to the Christians and Jerusalem. And Reynold, ever menacing, decided to break the truce once again. He raided a 400 people strong caravan of pilgrims returning from Mecca. He looted and enslaved them, treating them cruelly. By refusing to compensate and release the prisoners, and by replying to Salahuddin that, beseech your Muhammad to relieve you, Reynold poked the sleeping tiger. Things had become personal, and the Sultan took an oath that he would take Reynold's head himself. The Christians, knowing what was coming, closed ranks and united to await their fate. In June 1187 Common Era, or the year 583 after Hijrah, Salahuddin mustered up a force of 30,000 men, half of which were cavalry, and camped within 10 miles range off of the Sea of Galilee on some high ground. The Christians had a force of 20,000 men, but it consisted of a heavy lineup of Templars and Hospitallers, amongst others, and they had the talisman, what they believed to be a wooden fragment of the True Cross. The leaders of the army were King Raymond of Tripoli, King Guy of Jerusalem, and Reynold. The Christian army wasn't in an ideal position physically. Their water supply was pretty much non-existent. In contrast to the Muslims, who had Lake Tiberias providing a constant supply. In a bid to find a better location to camp at and potentially battle, the Christian army began to march towards the town of Hattin, which was overlooked by two small mounds known as the Horns of Hattin. The problem was that Salahuddin's army came and blocked them, and they had cut the Christians off from behind too, meaning that there was no retreat. So, the Christians camped the night right where they were, within earshot of the Muslim camp. Their heavy armour and no water supply meant that the Christians were in quite the predicament, or as Salahuddin would have seen it, ripe for the picking. Both sides began to advance, with the Muslim archers picking off the Christian flanks. Raymond led a charge towards the vanguard of the Muslims, but the Muslims parted and showered the Christians with arrows. But Raymond and a lot of his men survived and managed to get past and away from the Muslims. So far away, in fact, that they actually fled from the battle. The rest of the Christian force tried to make their way up to one of the hills of Hattin for some potential water and protection, but found none. 
and so the Muslims began the assault uphill. The Christians, on their horses, led a charge downhill against the Muslims, but Salahuddin managed to inspire his men to take heart and fight back. This they did, and soon the Christian knights dismounted. They were exhausted and defeated, including their king. The Christians were either dead or being taken prisoner. Salahuddin prostrated to God in gratitude, and after prayers, summoned the Christian leaders to his pavilion. King Guy and Reynold were brought before Salahuddin, and out of tradition, King Guy was offered a cup of ice-cold water. This was a form of reassurance that he wouldn't be executed. Reynold was given no water, although King Guy offered him some from his cup. But Salahuddin clarified that he himself was not the one who offered it to him, so his safety was not guaranteed. He reminded King Guy that Reynold had broken his oath not just once, but twice and that he was guilty of depraved and profane acts against the Muslims. With that, Salahuddin struck Reynold with his sword and beheaded him. King Guy trembled with fear, but Salahuddin reassured him by saying, Kings do not kill kings, but he had overstepped the limit. This was followed by more executions of the Christian prisoners, and as far as the so-called True Cross relic is concerned, John Mann, the biographer, writes, and I quote, And what of the true cross, the taking of which was for Christians a graver matter than the taking of the king? As Imad al-Din put it, it was tied upside down on a spear and two days later paraded through the streets of Damascus as proof of its uselessness as a talisman and as an insulting rejection to the tale, not of Jesus himself revered in Islam as a great man, but of his resurrection. It is estimated that somewhere between 30 and 40,000 people died that day, most of them from the Christian army. The Frankish army ceased to exist in that part of the world on that day, leaving Jerusalem virtually defenceless. Over the next couple of months, Salahuddin took the cities of Acre, Tibnin, Nazareth, Beirut, Gaza and Ascalon, as well as many other towns and fortresses. He had brought the whole region into his dominion, and all that was left was a crown jewel, Jerusalem. But this is where we'll end this episode since there's still a lot to cover with regards to the life of this great Muslim ruler. We'll do so in the next episode, inshallah. From what's been covered so far, it's fair to say that Salahuddin was a man of many virtues and a man of such greatness comes very rarely every few generations. He wasn't just a military man or a king. He was also a great and pious Muslim. In all his dealings, he was just, generous, brave and had a zeal for jihad. An example of his generosity is that his officers would hide a part of wealth from the state treasury for rainy days because they knew that if Salahuddin learnt of his existence, he'd distribute it to the poor and needy, just like he would routinely do with the money he was aware of. There are many great lessons to be learnt from Salahuddin's life already, even before his greatest achievement, which was, of course, the retaking of Jerusalem. The ones that stand out to me the most are as follows. Firstly, He wasn't born into royalty, he wasn't an heir to a dominion, and his father was in no way even close to being considered a king or a prince. So the fact is that whatever Salahuddin achieved, he did so through firstly, God's blessings of course, and secondly, through his own merit. And that should give us some motivation, because it's not about where we were when we were born, it's more about where we'll end up, and the sky is the limit with God's grace. Secondly, he lived at a time of great disunity and disenchantment for the Muslim Ummah. But despite this, he didn't lose hope, nor did it demotivate him. In fact, it had the opposite effect. He saw that the Ummah was in a state of decline, so he decided to do something about it.
He did this through not just military means, but also through education, and especially by improving the economy of his lands. This, along with uniting Muslim countries which had been at war with each other for generations, empowered the world of Islam greatly. And that's a lesson we can take from him in today's era of disunity and the sorry state of the Ummah. Just because we're not where we used to be doesn't mean it's the end for us. We can still stand tall as an Ummah and unite so that the world can benefit from the greatest civilization on the planet. And lastly, we learned that he kept piety and righteousness at the forefront of his dealings. Aside from his charitable actions and deeds, his kindness and compassionate dealings, he was always loyal to his superiors and never schemed to uproot them. It was the case with Nuruddin Zangi as well as his son, Asale. Salahuddin supported both and stayed loyal to them during their reigns. And that's rare, considering the fact that Salahuddin had so much power, money and land under his control. It shows that he had great control over his nafs, which is a great lesson for us. And that's it for now. Like I said, there's a lot more to cover, so make sure to tune in to the next episode for more on Sultan Salahuddin Ayyubi. As always, remember the purpose of this podcast. We need to elevate the Ummah to greater standards. The best way forward is to elevate ourselves spiritually, mentally and physically and work towards a brighter future. We must learn to set aside our differences and find strength in unity. I kindly request you to rate this podcast and share it with your friends and family and stay tuned for more inspirational stories in the future, inshallah. With peace, assalamu alaikum.